Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Colin and Carolina. Thank you so much. Oh, I'll take it away. Uh, So I have a book coming out July 7th, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it to get you guys excited. It's an exciting section. So uh, it's about an aging trophy wife in Connecticut. And uh, there's two people, two narrators. Cheryl is the trophy wife, and Teddy is her son who loves drugs. So this section is Cheryl. When Jeffrey's first wife told me he had a voracious appetite for women, I assumed she was just trying to be vindictive. Now as I walked up and down the beach on my insomnia prowl, I tried not to think about all the things he had loved about her. The list seemed short to me, but it was always long to him. Why couldn't you love her like that when she was around, I had asked once. He had no idea where the love had gone then, but it was revived after she died. Perhaps that was when I should have left, but I kept hoping we could get back to the before time, when we felt lucky to be near each other. On mornings like this, the sunrise would come up over the Long Island Sound, and the neighborhood streets would be quiet and empty. Each beach home had an incredible view of the winding Connecticut shoreline, and if you squinted, you could see Long Island in the distance. 4 a.m. would hit, and I would find myself walking by windows trying to see what everyone was up to, hoping to see a blue wash of TV screens and peering around for something indecent. But the houses would be dark and quiet, everyone long asleep. It was the kind of neighborhood that was full of children, their soccer balls and plastic bats lingering in the streets, toy trucks lost in the manicured lawns of American flag-adorned clappered homes. I looked down at a dirt-caked Barbie doll with kite string wrapped around her plastic arms and wondered if all these children were destined to become troubled teenagers who were shipped off to college with a sigh of relief, as we had done with Jeffrey's son Teddy three years before. Without people, Little Neck Cove was one of the most breathtaking places I'd ever seen. I'd ignore the no trespassing signs and climb down neighbor's stairs onto their beaches to walk and unwind before Jeffrey woke up. I'd pace the rocks and the beach looking for shells, mating horseshoe crabs, or seagulls floating through the dawn sky. The beach was covered in smooth, flat stones, hidden quartz, and oddly shaped bloodstones. I'd pick them up and inspect the strangest ones, dropping them into my pocket one by one. There are always snap pieces of seashell and kaleidoscope sea glass all for the taking. These small objects that flipped and swirled along the ribbed floor of the sea would outlast us all. The soft, small waves made a hypnotic sound that would relax me into bliss. The sky would turn gray first, then light blue, and finally explode into oranges and yellows. There was nothing to obscure my view here, just sky as far as I could see. I could sit on the beach well for hours, listening with my eyes closed, sometimes falling asleep completely. It was the only place I didn't feel shut in, claustrophobic, unwelcome. Hours before the humidity became unbearable, I would watch the fishermen out on the jagged rocks that jutted out onto the sound, their lines glistening in the early morning glow. 
I knew they had been there all night, drinking and fishing as the waves lapped around them. One, an old man with a shaggy terrier, had come every summer since I met Jeffrey. He drove a beat-up truck with a raccoon tail on the antenna. Seeing him always meant the start of the summer for me. Lately, though, there were more men wandering around than usual. There was talk that we had made some online list for the best place for people to clam and fish, and people here were angry at the intrusion. We were far enough away from New York to feel like we were in a different world, but close enough to have successful commuter husbands. In the evenings, I'd see a row of purse-lift wives idling their cars in the parking lot of the commuter rail station, watching their bar car-riding husbands stagger off the train. The Connecticut shoreline was full of small towns like ours, each with an old congregational church and a large town green at its center. Homes with plaques stating their revolutionary age stood next to tasteful shops and cafes along Main Street. And along the water were hidden coves and snug blocks of beachside cottages, and people from New York would grab them as soon as they came on the market, trying to make this swath of Connecticut into the vineyard or the Cape. I passed the anchor of our little neighborhood, the little Neck Cove Yacht and Country Club, just as the grinding daily cacophony of lawnmowers began. The decorations from last night's Gadsby party were still up, and Jeffrey and I had always gone when we were first together, looking silly in seersucker suits and a flapper dress, but it was fun. We hadn't gone in years. That's what happens. Tiny adjustments and contractions to your needs because things are fun and you believe they will never stop being that way. We used to go to all the theme parties and find ourselves making out on the beach, my dress all sparkly in the moonlight. We didn't care who saw us then. We'd always been the last couple dancing, full of life, our hands all over each other, sweat beating everywhere. Now I had to staunch the flow of happy memories to survive our current state of indifference toward each other. If I brushed up against him, he seemed startled. I had taken the laughing and groping and desire that seemed endless for granted. As I watched the sunrise this morning, I didn't feel like sneaking back into bed, pretending I was waking up alongside Jeffrey. He didn't appreciate my attempts at normalcy and never asked where I had been when he woke up to an empty bed anyway. It was as if he was somehow grateful for my absence. I decided to keep walking to the neighborhood's nature trail. Built into the saltwater marsh of tall cattails, the trail traversed inlets and thick labyrinthine channels connected to the next hidden cove of homes. It was Connecticut postcard perfect here, full of painted turtles and tiny crabs and unexpected sprays of beach roses. Whenever the tall grass was flattened back after a storm, I could see the teenager forged trails into the hidden parts of the marsh. I'd follow the trails until they led me into a small grove with beer cans and burned out wood piles. I'd collect the cans and clean up the wax from tree stumps, trying to ease the damage created by late night parties. I wanted to find them in mid-swing during one of my walks, see who was lusting after whom, feel what it would be like to be young again, nervous and hopeful, but I only ever found the remnants of their drunken joy. I was enjoying the bright sparkle of the water, training my binoculars on the hatching bird nest beds staked high above the seagrass. The hiss of locusts and summer beetles filled the air, a clucking that I missed all winter long. As the sun rose, the humidity felt like a bath, and I was already soaked through my shirt. I had a thin, small bird book that Jeffrey had given me in my back pocket. Now was the time when the plover birthings were in full swing, and it was exhilarating. 
Their call notes, like plaintive bell-like whistles, filled the air around me. It was a sound unlike any other, and I preferred it to humans talking. The whistles flitted around me and made me feel calm yet alive. These birds were unencumbered. They just lived and flew, and most of all, they didn't betray. I tried to follow their calls and considered going off the bridge to walk along the shore, a no-no in the bird sanctuary rule book. I wanted a closer look, so I looped one leg over the rope and boardwalk and looked around to make sure no one was watching. Then I heard a moan, almost a groan really, and looked down. Three feet below me were two legs with sneakers and an arm feverishly moving. I pulled my leg up and backed away from the edge of the boardwalk, not wanting to disturb anything. I didn't want to be caught watching. I didn't want a confrontation. As I hurried down the path away from the legs, I kept turning around to make sure he wasn't following me. Who was it? A teenager? Someone's husband who liked to get off on the rocks? Finally, something had happened to wake up my summer. I looked at my watch and realized I wouldn't be able to go home and change before the club's uh, summer fashion show. So I ran down the trail, fluffing my hair and hoping the bags under my eyes weren't too drawn. I stopped once more to see if the legs were still splayed out under the sand and rocks. They were gone. As I saw wide bird wings fill the sky, I knew the man under the boardwalk was coming. He was somewhere I couldn't see, so I ran. Thanks. What's the release date again? Uh, So that's from Carolina's forthcoming book, uh, The Invaders. It's coming out July 7th. It's fucking awesome. It's so dark. It's an excellent book. You guys should all pick it up when it's out. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from... This book, which is a Western called Haint Stay, that came out on Tuesday. Um, a haint is the, the southern colloquialism for lost soul or ghost. I might not use this, actually, since it's kind of squealing. I might just project. I'll stand up. Oh, for the podcast. Okay. Hello, potters. That wording. Okay. So, normally I don't like to do preamble, but I don't remember where the section starts, so I'll preamble it by saying this Western is sort of about, there are like six main characters, uh, two of whom are brothers, one of which is pregnant with the other's child. Sugar's delivery had to be overseen by several of the town's deputies, partially because the doctor had spoken out so strongly against it. The doctor was a committed drinker. He had steady hands until around 3 o'clock, and then he was more than worthless. Since Sugar's arrival, the doctor had committed himself to enfeeblement. He would sit in the bar and drink, then he would drink in front of the bar, and then he would drink in the alley off to the side of the bar, and all the while he was calling Sugar an abomination and a creature and the devil. He said Sugar was pregnant with his own cock, and if he, the doctor, were to squat before him while he was birthing that cock, it would be more or less the same thing as inviting the animal, Sugar, to fuck him. I will not be fucked by an animal, insisted the doctor on a nightly basis. He was a man of medicine, a church-going man. He had survived two wives and had two sons working to keep the peace. He deserved better. The morning Sugar went into labor, the doctor opened up the bar. The bartender protested, but did not make a move to pry loose the doctor's hand. In theory, the doctor was a respected man. 
He was educated and on the richer side of things, and above all, he was necessary to their way of life. He was not a bad doctor, though he was unreliable. He'd once cured the bartender's ringworm without much fuss and saved the lives of several men and women who'd come down with some kind of horrible fever just the year before. In theory, he was one of the town's more important men, and in practice, he was universally ignored whenever possible. In the jail, Sugar demanded help, but could form no specific requests other than, please bring a doctor, or please let me go. The doctor, drink in hand, held court on the porch in front of the bar. While I've never dealt in creature before this day, I can confidently say that to let this one out early, to open the cell any time within the next three or four hours, would be the same as letting it loose to wreak havoc on the women and children of our good town. A beast like that won't be slowed down by something so casual as labor, at least not until it's well enough along that it's more or less immobilized by the pain and by the position its body will naturally assume. Four men, one woman, and three children were gathered before him, pausing their daily procession in order to hear more details about what was going on in the jail and why so many deputies were assigned to its security and why the doctor himself had been so put out over the last week. Rumors were spread and the doctor was always talking, but something was different about this morning. The doctor rose and swung his bottle like a little young boy, dancing his doll across the floor. We live and see the world progress into strange, dark places, the doctor said. The stench of what evil is on the horizon is beyond repute. Every morning, I wake to the relief that we are still here, that there are familiar faces and friends about me. And then the horror of our situation settles in, and I feel both pity and fright at my life, at our lives, at what's to become of them. We are witnessing the de-evolution of morals into muck. The degradation of decency. You're a doctor? said one of the men. He was sporting a bright white hat and a long button-down shirt tucked into a snug fit of jeans. No, I am the doctor, said the doctor. I'm going to leave it there. So Carolina and I are just going to talk a little bit about this book and some about the invaders. And are we? Yeah. Whatever yeah. I can work into your questions. All right. Well, I loved this book, so I have some important questions to ask. Okay, so I'll start here. Your book was labeled an acid western. Was that an intention of yours or was it a marketing thing? It was a marketing thing, 100%. <laughs> uh, I admit a, case was, a strong case was made, but I was really hesitant around the idea of even calling it a Western because I feel like, I mean, it, it's definitely really, really in, interested in Westerns, um, but it, there are so many conversations ongoing around the Western that this one just kind of completely throws away and only plucks out of the Western like what it's interested in fucking around with. Um, and then Eric at $2 Radio was like, this is an acid Western because it's crazy. And that, that worked for Wurlitzer, so we'll use it for yours. And I was like, well, what did Rudy Wurlitzer think? And he's like, oh, he hated it. And I was like, well, <laughs> okay, let's just do it. So we did it. Well, have you ever done acid? I've never been clear 
on how it works about publicly speaking about taking drugs. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine? We're on a podcast. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's privately and publicly speaking about taking drugs. Yeah. I took acid one time. Um... And I did not particularly like it. I've taken other hallucinatory drugs that I liked much more. Um, this one, acid, I felt like was a very, uh, it was too lucid of a trip for me. Even though I was seeing all this crazy shit, I was like, ah, it's because you're on acid. I want to forget that I'm on a drug. That's why alcohol is sort of preferred. <laughs> That's funny because I, I only took acid once as well, and it was horrible. And I kept saying, when am I going to stop being on acid? Yeah, it's last for fucking ever. That's the other thing. Yeah. It was like three days, and I had to take an airplane. I, I was at a rave in Oakland Were you on Halloween. taking acid? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, I was candy flipping, which I don't know if you know what that is. I have is. no idea what that That's is. That's taking acid, uh, liquid acid and ecstasy. And then I had to fly home to L.A. Still tripping. It was horrible. But I feel like the ecstasy would level it off. No. 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 The person who was who had to sit next to me, probably I was dinner party conversation for years as like the worst person he had ever met. <laughs> Do you recall any particular thing you said to this man? I just kept asking him if we were gonna die. Uh. <laughs> I do that, like, regardless of whether I'm on acid <laughs> Okay, so leading into the death question, actually. So um, I, was, I really loved the desert backdrop, and I was curious what you thought about what the desert has that lends itself to being the perfect backdrop for a struggle for freedom and life itself. Well, life, it's, I mean, it's very hard to survive in the desert. I don't know if we've all spent some time there. Um, if you, most of the characters who wind up in the desert in this book, so there's sort of three main locations in the book. There's the woods, there's town, and there's the desert. And everybody who winds up in the desert is kind of trapped there um, for one reason or another. And so their whole situation is largely one of how to survive and then what you think about when all there is is, all right, so I figured out how to survive, and now I have like my mind and the sun and the heat and that's it and hopefully a town somewhere on and the maybe potentially yeah. a town somewhere on the horizon so there's that hope of like where of how to get somewhere although this character keeps kind of zigging and zagging and deciding he's going to die and then deciding he's not going to die don't worry other parts like break into this so he's trapped but there's other characters doing shit everyone's trapped but everyone's excited to kill <laughs> 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 yeah. Excited? Do you feel like excited? No, no, I don't. I'm just joking. It's not excited to kill, but it's like a, this ongoing struggle for survival, and whoever's in the way of that quest for survival, you know, has to be eradicated. Colin's like, no, that's <laughs> not. You read I'm, my book. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm dealing with the, um, the. 
Rea- reader reaction. With the reader reality, or reader reaction, uh, which is that, like, when I wrote this book, I was like, oh, okay, there's some violent scenes, whatever, but mainly it's about, like, these people sort of, like, loving each other and, like, you know, figuring out a way to live. And then we did this book launch in San Francisco where 13 people, like, read sections of the book and then just retold what they remembered, and everybody there was like, so then a shitload of people die, and one main character gets murdered gruesomely by someone they cared about, and then... Um, next, you know. No, <laughs> I was I like, mean, holy God. What people bake bread. There's yeah, a baby there's born. Yeah. There's a lot of wonderful things that happen in this book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I found it very heartwarming at the end, actually. I felt like, you know, there was violence, but I felt sort of like, I, I actually left the book with feeling hope, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. It didn't feel bleak to me at all. Um, I felt like I felt like the time felt really real to me and I was putting myself in the shoes of of your characters and thinking like how would I survive? How would I survive a snowstorm? How would I survive a t- an empty town? How would I you know, who would I end up with if there were a town full of bandits and I knew I had to survive? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a very hopeful book, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so you grew up in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. How do you think growing up in Texas informed the kind of stories you tell? In terms of, like, landscape? Because I was really excited about this book because it's not about, like, East Coast or West Coast. I think what you were writing about was a time period and also a world that I don't see in novels that often right now, contemporary fiction. Seems fair. Um, I mean, it's, it, I think it brings, like, so I grew up in Texas, like I left when I was 18 um, and went to New York. But I lived in a town called Denton, Texas, which is like a small town, but it's not like a Texas town. It's like a college town. So there's a lot of Texan things, but it's not, you know, I wasn't in like Paris, the dancer Texas or whatever. Um, uh, so I think with this, in, with regard to this book in particular, growing up in Texas really influenced how sort of ludicrous the like Western stuff is because everything that I grew up around was just so funny to see, you know, like, like a, like a two-year-old dressed up as a cowboy, like eating ice cream, like on his way to see Transformers or like, um, you know, like I dressed up as a cowboy and did push-ups at like football games as like a school sanctioned activity. And there was, was like, why are we wearing boots? There's absolutely no reason for anybody here to be wearing boots. Um, I'm too fucking tall to be wearing boots. It makes me look like a monster. And so like all like the sort of humor in the book, I think comes from, challenging the sort of like the things that most westerns take very seriously well did you watch a lot of westerns growing up and like what were you reading because i feel like this book is like a challenge to that americanness of westerns yeah i mean i I definitely watched a lot more and read a lot more when working on the book than I did as a kid. But, like, as a kid, it was just sewn into everything in a way that, like, felt very normal at the time. But looking back, it's very weird. Like, in our like in my AP U.S. history class, we watched the Lonesome Dove miniseries, like, for a week. It's just, like, that's This what is we all did. you need to know. Uh, needless to say, I didn't do particularly well in my AP U.S. history test. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay, so... 
You have this trick in the book of having the traditional good guys not being very good, one of which is the doctor that you read an excerpt of. Um, but the I get the brothers, Brooke and Sugar, are are pretty ruthless, but I was pulling for them. So I was curious like how you went about building empathy and were you conscious of trying to make them empathetic or did it just happen? Like, do you like Brooke and Sugar? Yeah, you yeah, want totally. them. I like everybody in the book, yeah, but okay. like, and they do horrible things. But basically, like, I guess the reason I pause there is just the book is really like every time there was a character who I thought was like too good or like too you know like sort of easily to si- easy to side with, I just for some reason felt compelled to like fuck their life up through their own decision you know like they basically everybody does something awful at some point um and all the awful people get to do something good or like um at some point because it was like i don't necessarily have this like, like i think if you spend enough time with anybody you can find like something to like care for even if you can't uh commit your life to, like, caring for them because of, like, how challenging that could be for whatever reason. You know, maybe they're um, a serial killer, say. Uh, it would be hard to, to stay by their side. Right. Um, but, there, so it's, I, I didn't worry too much about trying to make the characters empathetic because I think I just kind of, when I started, like, imagining a character, like, I, I care about them a lot already. Mm-hmm. And so it is kind of, actually, there's a struggle for me of uh, trying to make it not too... The gr- like grossly like me to be like I love you like live your little life, you know. Um. So one of the themes that I found in the book uh, was passing, and I saw that through sugar. And I was curious if you want to talk about sugar at all, or if you want to save it for the reader to find out about sugar. But I was just curious why you find it alluring to write about people who are not themselves. People who are not themselves. That. So one thing that I've like said about the book, um, or tried to say, is that I think with this book, I started getting really interested in the sort in like the this weird mix of like expectation that we have for people and for ourselves. So the expectations that society has of us or culture has of us or that we feel it does uh, and then the, only, the expectations we have of ourselves within that um, and outside of that and then the kind of like the person existing somewhere around our failure to kind of meet either you know um, and that and that being like a source of like great pain but also like it can be a source of like great um, you know triumph if you can like <laughs> acknowledge that and like literally accept that not that I have ever accepted that I still am like striving for a personhood um with sugar like sugar is not concerned with his identity you know like sugar is just living his life and he's always lived his life the way he has and so is Brooke and like that's just their thing they meet they encounter a lot of people who don't know how to classify don't know how to classify them don't know what to think about them try to say all kinds of things about them and make all kinds of like assumptions about them and it never works 
but also no character's assumptions about themselves work either. Um, a lot of people think that they're very good in the book and they do really terrible things. Um, and a lot of people think that, they, that their way of life is going to get them through life and it doesn't. Yeah. Know. There's another theme that I found really interesting is like this, what is home? What is your home searching for home? And is that something that you are, find yourself writing about often or did it just feel like a concern, a central concern for this particular book? I think it was uh, a sort of also a reaction to the last book that I wrote, which was really just like in one space the whole time. Um, and two characters like sort of manipulating that space, but really like they don't leave this home base. And so I started thinking of um, a way of looking at characters who were forced to constantly be moving. Okay. So there's no place to settle for anyone. Um, even, you know, these characters are kicked around a lot, but even the characters who have great power in the book are kind of like, this is not going to last for very long. <laughs> like, this is my little moment, and then something's going to happen. But Yeah, it was interesting just to look at these people looking for their place, but they really are ghosts on a landscape destined to keep roaming and roaming and roaming. And roaming and roaming. Roaming forever. Uh, I was actually... The women in this book seem tougher than the men. <laughs> and uh, I was curious, what does being tough in this book look like to you? Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I guess there's two answers. One is that there's like the idea of tough, and there are a lot of characters who have this idea that they're tough, and they're really not that tough. They're pretty weak. Um, and they fail in a lot of ways, and that's fine, too. Um, but then the th a thing that the female characters do, uh, I guess we're talking primarily about Martha and Mary, uh, is that Martha has allegiances that a lot of the other characters don't. And so she protects people and she does anything she can to protect them and she doesn't like, she's not too concerned about herself except for, you know, sort of like when they're safe. Mm -hmm. um, Mary was raised by Martha and so Mary's idea is that the world is not so bad and like there's people who protect you um, there are things to look forward to and a lot of the other characters don't have that so Mary's thick skinned in the sense of well if something bad happens that's just that thing and then they have a resilience the men don't really have Brooklyn Sugar have some resilience they do yeah. everyone has resilience they have to in the book but I was just it was interesting to me that they weren't necessarily looked at as being like the 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 tough people, but they took the least shit of anybody. I feel like broken sugar. No, or, uh, Martha, Martha and Mary. And Mary. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> um, okay, so this is my last question, and then we'll open it up to to people who have questions. So I think you have a really interesting publication history, and I was curious. It's been indie. I was curious if you were going after big publishers or if you felt like, you know, I really love indie publishing and what's going on in indie publishing and I want to stick there because their publishing is interesting stuff. It's, we've talked about this before, mm -hmm. sort of the parameters of what you can do with big publishers versus indie publishers. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's hard to say because I've never been like presented a huge contract by a big publisher and, and then turned it down. Um, but the thing, I remember the first, first book I finished, I sent it out to agents. And the 
aside from the just sort of huge silence or the form response, I got a few responses that were like very positive about the writing or about various elements, but like wanted to make all these changes. And at the time, none of the changes that were presented were ones that felt right for this book. So then I thought, okay, well then this is not, like this is not gonna work, so I'll go on to this other thing. And then that worked, and then I saw another small press and I had a weird project, and I was like, why? Why my experience was, if it's weird, we're gonna try and make it less weird or a little like, you know, having like an identifiably like good quality or an identifiably like sellable. But you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not always sales, but it's something that they're comfortable with. Right. Um, and it was, you know, just they just kept being projects that I was confident in, um, in certain ways, and like I was happy to edit them, and uh, as long as the edits felt right. But it's, yeah. So anyway, after three edit, after three indie presses, I just started really liking working with independent presses for the reason of every independent press who accepted a book was like, all right, we love this for this reason, this reason, this reason. Um, let's do this. Let's work on this project together. And that's always been my kind of, like what's attracted me most is just like collaboration to the point, like as far as you can on whatever project it is. And um, just like sort of mutual support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like indie presses, at least the ones I've worked with, I mean, there's so many and they all do things so differently um, that the ones that's like, you know, $2 Radio, Lafigue, uh, Sport Press are all really distinct personalities and they bring that personality to a conversation that you get to have with them, you know, and then put out a book together and see what the hell happens with it. Cool. So. Oh no! But now I want to ask you about the invaders because you did a book with Two Dollar Radio, and then I feel like you've gone up. Like Regan Arts is like a slightly larger press. So what are you looking for when you made that transition? Rather than just doing another novel with Two Dollar Radio, what was your thinking? Well, I I love Two Dollar Radio so much, but I just felt like the book that I was writing didn't feel like a Two Dollar Radio book. Yeah. I think they're really uh, they. They publish a wide range of writers and books, but this felt like Connecticut Shoreline, Aging Trophy Wife. It just felt like not really in their wheelhouse or something that they would be interested in. <laughs> but it was a really hard book to sell. Yeah. Uh, and I had a lot of editors coming to me from... Uh, you know the success of the first book saying we want to read this and then their their response was like this is too dark mm-hmm. i don't know how are we going to sell this to book clubs which no one ever wants to hear <laughs> that that even matters um so you know i think it took like a year or so to sell it uh and reagan arts actually appreciated the darkness uh which i i thought was amazing because I, I this was my mainstream book yeah. <laughs> and then I was hearing like no my god the stuff that's happening in this book like no no way but that's what like <laughs> see, see this is what yeah fuck big presses <laughs> because like 
the darkness of that book is what makes it so special and amazing. Like it's an amazing book, and it's very dark, but it's also not like dark because it's filled with murder. Right. It's dark because like you you go to the links of like what people who are like sort of in, stuck in a situation or like striking out against that situation would do, and like you don't flinch and you just go there and live with it and like let your make your characters live with it. And so many books dodge it or like find a safe place for people and it's like just let your characters nobody like I mean your characters are safe in this like Connecticut town um, but they don't feel safe. it feels like very scary <laughs> a very scary place well I think honestly I think publishers underestimate readers yeah. uh, and I think readers do want darkness I, I don't think Gone Girl would have been as successful as it was if readers weren't looking for dark things but I think publishers are te- you know they're afraid you know, they want to make their money back. They don't want to offend anybody. My mom told me, as my mom always tells me, she told me with my first book, this just might not be for everyone. And <laughs> with this that's book... Same, that's like really similar to what she said about your ability to play golf. Yeah, yeah. My mom <laughs> said, some people just never get good at golf. <laughs> Meaning me. Uh, but, you know, she said with this book, you're going to upset some people and you just have to live with it. And I kind of, that's sort of my mentality now. It's like, all right, you know, it's not going to be for everybody, but hopefully some people, it resonates with some people. Yeah. Bringing up Gone Girl made me think of how there's this scene in the book that's like particularly dark where she, not to ruin it for everybody here, but I'm going to go ahead and ruin it, um, where she like cuts herself to draw blood, to like put blood on the crime scene. And when they adapt it into a film, she just like, gets blood somewhere like she doesn't and that was the most difficult moment for me but it also made it feel like the most present like it was the most present moment I had with the book I was like this is like really real and it really hurts to read this Um, whereas I didn't care for that book outside like that much Um, and then they made it into this shitty Hollywood movie she went to the blood bank she went to the blood bank I just went and bought bought some blood you know it's like that's it (laughs) from a poor graduate student selling plasma to pay back her student loans (laughs) Oh, that was terrible. Um, That's it. No. (laughs) I didn't prepare any questions, but I have all of these questions that I want to ask you. Um, So, and maybe this is too personal, but you tell me with a signal that no one else, everybody close your eyes. Um, Just in in that moment of like trying to sell a book, where you're like, this is real, like, I love this project. And it has this darkness. And people are telling me it's, it's too dark. Um, how did you stick with the darkness? Like, what, like, what in you... I was like, I, don't, I will not edit this out. I will, like, stick with, this, stick with these guns and go for it. I mean, I don't know how to be anybody but who I am. Yeah. And I don't know how to write anything besides what I write. Like, I remember... In one of my first writing classes, uh, when I was in ninth grade, I wrote this crazy story, and my professor was like, uh, maybe you should try to write something happy. <laughs> and so I went and was like, okay, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. And like, I wrote a poem about how beautiful the flowers are and how buzzy the bumblebees were and whatever and he read it and he was like this is garbage and don't ever do that again and so 
you know, as a ninth grader, I wrote this story that had like not one, but three rapes in it because I was going for the gold, you know? (laughs) So luckily I've come to a place of not doing that, but I know my limitations and they are, I can't write something happy-go-lucky. I'm writing a book about miracles right now, which I'm trying. Collaboration with ICP. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to go a little more hopeful, but it's me hopeful, so it's still going to be dark. Is that what attracted you to writing about, like, a Connecticut community of, like, wealthy people whose lives are so, like, perfect, but then just, like, sort of destroying it? You know, I I grew up in Connecticut, and I grew up in, like, a wealthy town. I was not. Our family, we weren't wealthy, but we were surrounded by all this wealth. And I just remember seeing the women of the, this town uh, give up a lot for that wealth. And it made me realize, like, if you marry for money, you completely give up your agency because you stop working and then your husband can basically do whatever he wants, which was happening. And these women who hadn't worked in 20 years and were aging, their husbands were cheating on them and they were trapped because if they left them, they were giving up their spot in a country club they were giving up their home they were giving up their whole social life so that's why i wanted to write the book as sort of this ode to those women um to really say like this is this is what we give up for this life that really makes me want to ask you about the end of the book but no i I don't want to give away (laughs) the end um i will ask i'll ask a question that is more generously about the end i'll say um so you recently wrote this pretty awesome essay uh refer refinery 29 is that what it's called Uh, about like crystal meditation and in that essay you say that one meditation helped you discover the ending or helped you sort out the ending of the book um and i was wondering if you could talk about that yeah so um with twin palms a lot of people said like i captured a sense of smell which uh I've really been thinking about, and with this book, Invaders, I also wanted to have like a sensory experience, but through going to the Integratron in Joshua Tree and that like reverberation of sound, I left there really thinking about how sound worked in my book, and I realized I wasn't taking the opportunities that I should have been. So then I went back and added a layer of sound. Mm. So that's how I figured it out. So we'll leave it there. Yeah, leave it there. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, so we could do some audience questions if you guys have any for either of us. Or we could just go to the bar. Could you riff more on when you added a layer of sound? <laughs> well, I was thinking about uh, what my characters would have heard during this situation at the end of the book and uh, I realized I completely ignored what they would have been hearing and so I started thinking about what would a person hear you know in this situation what's alive and around you and happening um, outside of the body of these characters which I think I I think uh, so I do crystal meditation often and uh, that is 
can often be an out-of-body experience where you're thinking beyond yourself about your surroundings. And I think it's kind of an amazing thing that writers should do because you start thinking about other senses, especially when you're writing from first person, you're so in your head that you don't, your characters sometimes don't think about everything around them. And so I've been working hard in my own life to think about the world outside of my own head. No, it's still first person, but just pulling in the experience of the world outside of like, this is how I feel about what's happening, you know. Nobody likes the omniscient point of view anymore, so I, I find it really interesting how people... That's my third book, though. It's all omniscient. <laughs> I better rewrite it. This is the miracle one. Yeah. Ah. Miracle book, yeah. So, it's my first time writing third person yeah. omniscient, yeah. How are you liking doing it? Uh, I do, because I really... So this miracle book, I feel like God in my own miracle book. It's pretty awesome. I guess, like, a miracle book is the place for it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, now you are going to fall over. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I like you anymore. (laughs) That's what I just did on every page of this book. Oh, uh, okay. So do you know Spellbound Sky? It's in Silver Lake, and they sell crystals. But there's a woman named Jessica Snow who is a guided meditation. Um, well, she does guided meditation. So depending on what's happening in the world, uh, the guys at Spellbound Sky and Jessica will pick a crystal to help you. So right now, Mercury's in retrograde, so everyone's having a hard time. And they pick crystals every Friday that will help you get, like, it's almost over, so they're, I think they did hematite, so last hurdle. Um, so you hold your crystal, and Jessica Snow takes you through this amazing guided meditation where essentially you, all the sludge that's been keeping you down and like fucking you up, she gets you to sort of filter it out, and then you run through visions that she comes up with and she's an incredible writer like her guided meditations are so beautiful and everybody after the hour is up is like glowing and freaking out because of what you see uh i did one today not with her i was telling them i was like loopy when i got here it was four hours and we were uh doing meditation with a pyramid quartz crystal and she was having us look at the each side of the pyramid and we would have to think about what was being reflected back to us and what that meant so you have no control over what you're seeing but then you think about what it means like what you're seeing what it means so what's the meditation that you're seeing jessica snow she has online meditations too that you could do by yourself. Uh, everyone should do it. <laughs> I think it is, yeah. It's helped me a lot with my writing. Welcome to LA. Question in the back. 
Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Zoe, why don't you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, anyway, <laughs> we're okay, talking about it. So, you mentioned Gone Girl, and you've got this like psychotic, strong woman lead. Um, and it's just, it's interesting how Hollywood, you know, goes for sexy, psychotic, strong lead. And I'm just wondering if you guys have pictures of different kinds of animals that may not follow the form or, or what kind of heroin would you guys like to see? I mean, I just, I'm feeling like I'm not seeing interesting stuff out there. I'm seeing sex on, you know, on lots of different levels. Nothing really, nothing really real. Oh, so like heroines divorced of their sexuality to m- Right, of their value. Or we could, or like just heroines who are maybe sexy in any other way than this like one particular vein of sexiness that's just like completely, they're always like, we need a sexy heroine, and they always are like this, you know? It's just like, if we could do anything else, I'm, I'm very comfortable being attracted to my heroines, but they don't, like there's a lot of, attracted, of attractive people and a lot of things that are, like different kinds of things that are attractive about people. None of these characters in this book are attractive. Um, your characters are like, dealing with losing things that, like, were identified as attractive. Yeah, I... uh, So this book that I wrote is, like, all about fading sexual currency. So this particular woman... uh, And I think a lot of women, and I'm not knocking it, I'm really interested in it, uh, you know, they're beautiful, that's the currency they use through their whole life, and, like, what happens when that's gone? What is your identity then? Uh, and I think that's a super interesting question. And I'm doing an interview with my friend right now because I'm really obsessed with like Courtney Stodden and she, <laughs> Google her. Uh, she's an internet celebrity. She's she was like 16 and married a guy from Lost, and now has a sex tape and stuff like that. But there's all these young women who are really hypersexual, and I wonder like what happens to them after 26. Like Lindsay Lohan's 26, and um, what's going to happen to her when she's 45? Like. Is she going to be dead, or what is? What are these women going to look like at forty-five or fifty? Like, and why can't we envision it? So you're working on a new currency. I think that we don't need to worry about our sexual currency as much as we do. That's my idea about life. <laughs> I think there's, we should be worried about other stuff, how smart we are, how, you know, the things that we do for other people and not just like, uh, I'm a bit crass when I talk about it, but it's like all boils down to now, like who's fuckable. And if you're not, you don't matter. Uh, so I'm more interested in everybody else. That's why I like I mean, I think from the perspective of, like, trying to make a thing, like, you're looking for things that can be compelling. Like, something to, like, that would get someone 
who's paying attention to it, like reward them for paying attention to it in some way or keep them invested. And like the easiest thing to do is to present them with something that they want or like you think that they want. And so like sex, like being, sex is just like a shorthand for compelling. It's not, it's not really that compelling. Like you can't really follow it that far. I mean, sex is amazing and awesome, but like, like someone who's just sexy, like that fades really quick. Um, be it through living or be it through you're just like looking at a picture and you're like, I'm no longer interested in looking at this picture. Um, so when you're trying to make a project that it isn't like, it's a good exercise for us all to think about like, how do I, how do I avoid shorthands, the compelling short, uh, shorthands for compelling? Um, I don't want it to be just this thing that I know is going to work. Like what else can I do? And that's, I mean, I think that's, a lot of the work that really sticks around is the work that like answers this question in a unique way. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. So you're such a spirited reader. I was wondering, and at this part of your process, do you read out loud as you're writing? Yeah, for sure. You do. Mm -hmm. You're a really good reader. Not as I'm writing, but um, thank you. You're also a very good reader. But you're very spirited. That's the perfect word for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't, I think with the first couple of books, I didn't um, read everything aloud, but then I went on like a tour with the second book and I was, whenever I found work that like I could read out loud, like that, like there was certain work that I read that I was like, this is like no, I have this is like nothing here. Like I like reading it, but like in terms of like, why would I present this to anyone in a public way? Um, <coughs> It just started making me think about right, how are you gonna how to write work that like can be presented that like has that connection when it's read aloud. Um, so now I read everything aloud, but it comes after the draft. So it's like write it and then read it and then read it aloud and like does it work aloud and editing aloud. To the audience or to yourself? Uh, to myself. <laughs> That's really interesting. I haven't thought about that. But then I notice like at readings, if something's not funny, it's not gonna. It doesn't. Doesn't go. That's yeah. That's another. I mean, that's a pitfall of this practice. Like you don't like some. The, it's another shorthand for compelling. It's funny, you know. And it's like um, you see so many reader, so many readings where people. Like, I saw a guy just put his book down and do stand up comedy at a reading really recently, and it was hilarious. But I was like, is that what we have to do? Like, yeah, perform. You know? Yeah. Um, I should have read the sad section instead. I read the funny section. Then I could speak to it better. Um, but yeah, it's true. Is that because drama doesn't feel? I think it's hard to follow. I yeah. think when you have like a long reading that feels like, uh, I don't really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be paying attention, but there's all this other stuff happening. Uh, I'm zoned out. But I think if you, mm -hmm. ha you if, if people start hearing other people laughing, then they tune in. Um, and it just seems easier to read. My yeah. the last book, there aren't that many funny parts, but I found myself only reading funny parts, which was false advertising. For the book. It seems that if you look behind you, that's actually a television there, and that it seems to be used in more people's readings, I've noticed, and people are doing presentations. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Showing videos along with their work now, that seems to be this thing, so that, you know... To the reading, you've got to like you know have a Dance. film. Yeah. They've got a whole you know yeah. <laughs> to do things like that. So it's this really interesting sort of morphing that's going on. So yeah. got to sell those sure. books. But um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you all for coming. And thank you to Carolina.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.